0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Tiers Latham. This is episode 106. So here we are, 1830. Makoma had been ejected from his beloved region around the Amatola Mountains of the Eastern Cape to be replaced by the new khoikhoi dominated Kat River settlement, a buffer zone for a buffer zone. It was a time of punitive patrols sent forth by the British to search for rustled cattle across the Fish River into Amatosa Territory. This was known as the Patrol System, or the Reprisal System, and based on the Spoor Law, which described a process where patrols would follow the tracks of stolen cattle. The military patrols were a combination of the British and Koi Cavalry, which would seize the same number of cows stolen from settler farms from the first Amatosa settlement they came across, whether the people living within were guilty of theft or not. The authority's supposition was that it was impossible for the people living in the kraal to be unaware of the rustled animals being led past their homes, so they were treated as accessories. The Kat River settlement did not end the turbulence along the frontier because this reprisal system of patrols increased tension. The British believed they had no other choice, because of the Amat intransigence about the frontier, the 1820 settlers distrusted both the British officials and the Amat and the Koikwe. By June 1831, Andri Stockenstrom was firefighting along this frontier, while his nemesis, Colonel Henry Somerset, was setting the region aflame. Stockenstrom regarded most of these patrols as onerous, more like getting even than proper policing. Then another amat chief was lined up by the patrols for special attention. Tiali was of the Koza royal line, and he at first tended to roll with Somerset's punches. The British were scouring his territory near the Amatola mountains, trying to push him east of the Makazana River. But Tiali was an expert at political jujitsu, neither resisting nor moving, just bending. The Mankazana River's headwaters can be found north of the town of Adelaide in the eastern cape and flows into the Kunapurafil, which in turn flows into the Great Fish River. Shall I never have peace in my own country? Charlie complained to the missionaries. Am I to be treated this way day by day? The Mat-Kosa knew that the raids were aimed at expropriation of their land and eventually a gathering of the chiefs was held where Makoma warned that the reprisal cattle raids were a prelude to other measures. These would not only endanger their independence but lead to a complete subjugation of their country. That much was clear, particularly as he was personally feeling the effects. In August 1831, Matkoma came under personal attack once more As the chiefs continued to exert themselves to stop their adherents from inflaming the settlers, but the colonial farmers tended to guard their animals loosely, and the temptations grew. The settlers were wary of being isolated as herders on these grand slopes of the Amatolas because the Amatosa had attacked individual herders over the years and killed them. As I explained... The Koi Koi and the Bastards and the Kat River tended to manage their herds more directly, with groups of armed men from the families who were always on the felt, unlike the colonists who hired Koi or Amakosa herders, then preferred to remain close to their farmhouses in case of trouble. I'll spend a future episode focusing on the lifestyle of these farmers, and you'll hear more details of the challenges in their daily lives, which were mind-boggling, really. Some Like the Balker family, for example, who I've mentioned before, tended to be more proactive about patrolling their beasts, unafraid to spend nights out under the stars, shooing off any cattle rustlers. Apart from these notorious patrols crisscrossing the Eastern Cape, Henry Somerset had sent out commandos which were distinctly different from the military version. They involved civilians as well as soldiers, and the civilians were usually boers. The 1820 settlers had kept away from these commandos until 1834, when the next frontier war was to begin. It's important to distinguish between patrol and commando, because when the call went out for men to join a commando, it was for a major confrontation, not the -the run-of-the-mill cattle rustling stuff. Somerset began mobilising the commandos, almost like his own personal army. The British had a lingering respect for the Boers, who formed the corps of these commandos. They were practical and mustered on great occasions, or when there was a frontier commotion of some sort. Somerset began to blur the lines between the patrol and the commander, which was going to have a repercussion for everyone on the frontier. Henry and Andris continued to quarrel about all of this because the final sanction for any commander rested on Andris Stockenström's shoulders. But Somerset tried to evade this chain of command, this organogram, by bypassing Andris and appealing directly to the governor, Sir Lowry Cole. Henry was British, a soldier. The governor was British, a soldier. Stockenström was a Swedish-Dutch. You can see where this is going. Somerset tended to brief Sir Lowry Cole in the most alarmist terms. For Cole, that meant action, concerted violence. It must be stopped. We can't let them get away with this kind of language. Cole was acutely aware, however, of the missionaries and the humanitarians who monitored his every action. So he would only support patrols and commandos if Stockenstrom agreed. While the administrators tussled, 1820 settler journalist Robert Godlington was generating in the Gramscian Journal in 1830 a series of stories, decrying the Amakosa rustlers who he referred to as Banditi infesting the colonial frontiers. More famously and controversially, he said, the British race was selected by God himself to colonize Kaffraria. A number of individuals, who in the broad sense of the word can be described as intellectuals, were creating a clear sense of common settler identity as a weapon for the achievement of definite and hardly hidden political goals. The great majority of the settlers were proponents of a hard line towards the causa and the Eastern Cape Khoikhoi. The English-speaking settlers profited even more than the rest of the colony from the expenses incurred by the British government in protecting them. While they supported missionary work, many were staunch Methodists. They regarded the political activities of some missionaries, above all John Philip and James Reed, as anathema. They also believed that the Cape Colony should be split, although it was a matter of dispute whether the capital of the eastern province should be in Grahamstown or Euternag. The motivation, dear listener, was that they believed in doing so they would have a majority of the white population speaking English in the new province. This was erroneous. The Trekboers probably outnumbered them even in the Eastern Cape, but this didn't stop the English-speaking Cape settler from taking jobs in the Cape government, then trying to turn their ideas into reality. The commando was now an instrument of intimidation and terror and of arbitrary cattle seizure, but worst for the settlers, it began to convince those riding with the commando of a certain kind of invincibility. They feared no consequence of their action and believed that the Amakosa would be too afraid to respond, too riven by their own differences, to put their differences aside and attack the commanders and the settlers. Andri Stockenstrom was one of the few colonists who realized that the commanders were taking on a more ominous tone. He and Henry had agreed on the large commander of June 1830 to look for stolen cattle, but during the operations, Nchlambi's brother Sikao had been shot as he emerged from his hut unarmed, The man had been murdered in cold blood, and Stockensfilm put a case together for a charge against those involved. His demands for an inquiry were quashed because Henry was involved. What the settlers and the commando hotheads did not seem to realize, or if they did, they didn't care, was that Strau was a highly respected member of the royal family and his death caused turmoil among the Amatosa. Some of the far-flung settlers and the missionaries, however, were more fine-tuned to these feelings. Missionary Stephen Kay wrote that Hinsa of the Kaleka was greatly unhinged by the news of Sikawu's death and more suspicious of the British than ever afterwards. Then news of a second chief being arrested and ending up behind bars at Fort Wilshire drove Hinsa to distraction. Kay wrote in his journal that this seemed to arouse the ire of the nation and everyone became enraged when speaking about it. It was a little while later that Andri Stockenstrom decided to attend horse racing in Grahamstown, which was one of the settlers' favourite pastimes. It was there that he ran into Colonel Henry Somerset on the racetrack, whereupon Henry said he wanted to send another big commander to follow up on rustling, but this time the commander would be composed entirely of boers and have no soldiers. I had quite enough of the commander last year said Stockenstrom, and denied the request, whereupon Henry went over his head directly to Sir Lowry Cole and said that there was an urgent state of need on the frontier. He carefully avoided telling Cole that Stockenstrom did not agree and obtained permission. Before Somerset's rather hare-brained scheme could be set in motion, Stockenstrom found out and sent an urgent message to Cole protesting, whereupon the governor rebuked Somerset. Stockenstrom realized that as long as one soldier could be moved with hostile intent against Amatosa and without his sanction, his political responsibility was a sham and a hoax, as he put it. It was the final straw, and Andres decided he'd had enough of the madness of the frontier and sailed to England in 1833 to complain to the colonial authorities about his sham before he headed back to his ancestral home. In Sweden, as I'll explain next episode, affairs on the frontier were sinking even faster and deeper into a muddied scene of ignorance, brutality, and reactive consequences as the gestures of what Noel Mostat calls limited military minds were to show. But now it's time to leap back on our trusty trekboer pony and ride to Port Natal, where the traders were learning to deal with this new Zulu king, Dingan. Dingaan's first act was to augment the Izinyosi regiment by forming a new Ubuto called the Uthlomundlini, the Home Guard. The traders looked on nervously. Nongazala Ka Nondela was its commander. He was of the Nyuandini, and would become one of Dingaan's leading generals. The Home Guard, the Uthlomundlini, was a force of men who had evaded during the last big impi, which was supposed to defeat the Swazi, the Baluli Impi. Dingaan had moved to his Ikanda near modern-day Ulundi, in this massive place called Mgungudlovu, the place that encloses the elephant. Dingaan held forth in his exceptionally large audience hut that lay at the northwestern corner of the Black Izigodlo. It was described as the supreme example of a hut builder's art, supported by ten wooden poles and accommodated 50 people. Dingaan's private hut was on the eastern side of the Black Izigodlo. That's where he ate and slept. The central pole in his personal hut was entwined from top to bottom with red and white beads in patterns. This practice was forbidden anywhere else. The Umulukulu woman who threaded these beads also wore nothing except large beads with an opaque white core covered with a layer of red amber, which had been imported from Cape Town through Port Natal. The official name for these products were cornaline de Aleppo, A string of these long enough to wind around your neck will set you back more than 1,400 US dollars these days. In those days, the highly prized beads were restricted to the king and his household. Speaking of the household, some points. Dingaan loved women. He favoured young women who were stout with pretty faces. And his favourite entertainment was to have about 100 of these women sing for hours until they were exhausted. The Imunlukulu were described as so fat they had to sit and sing, moving their arms together as they did so. And the first traders who met Dingaan were afraid of him. He had a keen and quick look. Nothing escaped him, it appeared. Isaacs met him and said he was quelled by the Zulu kings, piercing and penetrating eyes, which he rolled in moments of anger. Dingaan's Zulu accent, though, was kwabe. He spoke in the Amalala style, the one that Shaka had joked about so much, calling himself Dingan, whereas the official pronunciation among Zulu perfectionists was Dingana. This is what his Amantungwa purists would have said, Dingana, behind his back, of course. Within a few months, the colonists were describing Dingan as weak, cruel, indolent, capricious, and even more prone to human blood than that monster Shaka. But the Zabonga praise poets hailed him as the giver of cows with full udders, and the oral historians say he had a good heart among men. The colonists changed their tune a year later. In 1830, Isaacs wrote that, Shaka was born and nurtured in war, which was his darling aim, whereas Dingaan cultivates the repose of peace and only wields his spear when necessity compels him. He is no warrior. He is a man whose soul seems devoted to ease and pleasure. Many Zulu oral history notes about Dingaan are fascinating, recognizing his deep, unfathomable nature, calling him Deep One like pools of the sea. Other Izabonga would chant, the reserved one, he doesn't speak, he has no mouth, he is not like Shaka, who used to finish a kraal speaking. Dingaan never laughed out aloud. His amused grunt was his preferred method of expressing surprise or happiness. He would merely nod when amused, and his people liked this. A man of reserve, a sensible, prudent, and cautious man. He who peeps over dry ravines before crossing who washed his hands and they dried while he was in council, sang his prose poets. His closest minder, his ngeku, Tununu, found him friendly and cheerful, but when provoked, Dingaan could slip into terrible displays of temper. Once Tununu was beaten viciously with a stick by the Zulu king, and his fingers were broken because Dingaan believed Tununu had slept in the long grass with one of the women from his izigordlo. The Izabongu had another chant about Dingon, which went, Ox that encircles the homestead with tears. Mamba, who, when he was down, he was up. Hidden behind Dingaan's portly exterior and flashing eyes was a man who indulged in murder to reinforce his position. One of his most trusted advisors was Nzobu Kasoballi, also known as Dambuza. Equally portly and famous for wearing his white blanket, and Zobo was disinclined to suggest mercy when Dingan asked his opinion. The killing of people is a proper practice, for if no killing is done, there will be no fear, Nzobo was quoted as saying by Zulu oral historian Janchi. Nzobo was the brother of Bibi, Senzanga Kona's favorite wife, who had been prominent under Shaka and survived the changing of the guard. As King Fechuya was to say later, his uncle Dingaan commenced his career by killing all of his brothers except for Mpande, who was thought of as weak-minded and no threat, and a second brother who was far too young to cause him any difficulty. Then Dingaan killed all his brothers' principal chiefs, their friends, their women, and their children. At least eighty who were linked to Dingaan's royal line perished. His Ibongo sang, "Hornless calf of the daughter of Donda." Donda was an ancestor of Mpakazi, Dingaan's mother that went and kicked the other carbs, and blood flowed from their mouths. Dingan would end up paying for all this bloodletting, not least because of what he was going to do to Piet Retief and the other Trek in a few years. At first, Dingan gave off the essence of calmness, which the visiting European traders would have found confusing, seeing that this portly man, with his liking for stout, beautiful young women, good food and having a good time, had killed Shaka and his brother Mtlangana. He was taciturn and watchful and steady, but deadly like Zululand's most fearsome snake, the Black Mamba. In his Izibong, Dingana is called Wizard whose liver is black, even amongst his father's children. Wizard or Amtakati is a bad thing, but a metaphorical wizard means he was a man with amazing powers, and black liver meant he was profoundly courageous. The praised poets of Zululand sing about Dingan's exploits to this day, including the fact that he killed his brothers, Imtlangana, Imkhojana, Mdungazvi, Somajuba, Sopani, and Mphilu. There were more, but I'll get to them in a moment. Mkojana managed to survive until 1835, then Dingan, who never had children, killed him because he was the next in line. Another brother, apart from Mpande, was spared, Koko Senzangakona's youngest son that I mentioned a moment ago. Mpande had fought in the failed Baluli Impi. He was 30 but wasn't a threat in Dingaan's eyes. Some said he was slow witted, a bit backward. Isitutana. There's another reason why Dingaan disregarded Mpande. You see, he was the product of something known as the Mkosi festival, where the king was powdered with ritual medicines called Imsi, and later had sex with one of the women of his Isigodlo in a special hut. Children born of this process would be integrated into the royal line but referred to as inferior. Still, Dingan was thinking about bumping him off, but councillor Inlela convinced him to send the young Mpande along with some women and a hundred cattle to run his own homestead between Imlatusi and Tugela rivers, rather than terminating him with extreme prejudice. Dingan had a special military operation planned against the Kwabe, these original people of Zululand, and in particular Ngaetukakonlo, Pakatwaiw's younger brother. Nakatwayo, if you recall, was the elder Kwabe Nkosi, whom Shaka had killed. Nkatu wanted nothing to do with Dingaan and smelled a rat, so he set off on a quest to join the Amampondu alongside the Batra people. Dingaan was enraged by the loss of so many people and herds and was determined to stop any others from his southern counties from leaving. He blamed the Kale chief, Magai for not doing enough to stop the defection of the Kwabe and executed him. But Dingaan himself had caused this. It was he who moved his main kraal all the way from Kwa Dukuza to the Umfalosi River, a distance of over 170 kilometers, thus moving the center of power away from the Kale and Port Natal. After he dealt with Magai, he put Sotobi in charge of these southern regions, the man who led Shaka's first embassy to the Cape, if you remember. Sotobi had supported Dingaan and Mtlangana's assassination of Shaka, and was an eminent survivor. He was also Dingaan's elder, and was honoured when visiting Mgungunglovu by being housed in the same enclosure as the other honoured leader called Inlela. That was next door to the important Isigodlo, a space known as the Isikriki. Dingaan called him father, and later ordered Satobi to take out Magai's Theli e Mkonto. Like sharka before him, Dingaan was to wipe out a succession of leaders. He killed Zitlando, Ka, and Kwabe of the Mkizi people, who lived between the Middle Tugela and Upper Mvorti rivers. Then Dubi, Ka Silwani of the Khadi, was dispatched while he sat at home along the banks of the Middle Tugela. Dingaan further purged the Shlubi along the Imzinyati River, the buffalo, then the Kumalo people on the upper reaches of the Mkizi River. The use of murder as a political weapon is a very old idea in kwazulu Natal. Perhaps the most famous man dispatched by Dingaan in this early phase of his rule was Mbopa, who had been raised as an Nkosi south of the Platuzi River. He had become Shaka's Ngeku, and Dingaan knew that Mbopa's manipulation of his own emotions and Mflangana's made him a dangerous man. So Dingaan had him killed, which satisfied most of the Nkosi who marched back with the Baluli Impi, only to hear that Shaka had been murdered. As the European traders were to discover, Dingaan's reign at first held the promise of peace, but it rapidly became clear that nothing had really changed. Underlying social and geopolitical circumstances of the Zulu kingdom remained the same. But he did reinforce a few fundamental rules. Importantly, he decreed that the Imzumkulu River must be regarded as the southern boundary of the Zulu kingdom because he said, The land south of the river belonged to Faku, the pondu king. And with this, we must halt for the night and outspan the oxen. Next, we'll hear what the Port Natal traders were up to, and more from the Eastern Cape, which was lurching towards another war. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me or through Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, saligati.